we are way, way far behind where this market is already headed. And, and I mean that in a number of ways, whether it's product safety, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's legislation. And what's happening is consumers are deciding, at least in many communities, they've decided that an e-bike is a better way to ride, especially short distances. That's not changing. It's continuing to gain momentum. I think if we continue to just blame e-bikes and e-bike riders, we will be failing our communities and we will be failing these citizens who are trying to operate in a more kind of efficient and effective manner for themselves. Welcome to The Bike Lane. I'm your host, Jake Siegel. With us today is Carrie Kaufman, Chief Revenue Officer at Juiced Bikes. Carrie leads the marketing and sales efforts at Juiced. Her arrival in 2019 was a turning point for the brand leading to dramatic gains in advertising optimizations, high-profile media coverage, and market share acquisition. She is a masterful strategist, equally adept at generating valuable insights from complex data with over 20 years of experience across media platforms. Carrie worked at Upper Deck and Lampkin Golf, directing innovative marketing and e-commerce strategies, including digital-first media transformations and exclusive licensing partnerships to deliver record-setting profit and revenue growth. Carrie, welcome to the bike lane. Thank you. Excited to be here today. So let's start off first with why bikes, why juiced? You, you came over from some pretty powerful brands and love hearing from our, our guests on, on how you got into bikes and, and yeah. a little bit about uh, the background there. I'll be honest, when I was presented with the opportunity with juiced, I knew very little about e-bikes. I had never even been on an e-bike and they definitely weren't as popular as they are today. So it's been a fun journey. The other thing that I really loved about the brand was its consumer-first ideology. It was a D2C brand. At the time I joined e-commerce and D2C, their own website was their primary distribution channel. They're actually their only distribution channel. And that's something as a marketer and someone who's worked in e-commerce in the past, I really appreciated that ability to have a direct connect connection with your customer. So I was excited about that piece of it, the distribution but also very excited about the technology and learning more about kind of a new way to move around. And I still felt like it was sort of in the sports field in a way and definitely a lifestyle brand that was really interesting to me. And then I had a chance to ride an e-bike, a juiced bike, very early on. I think it was my second or third day. And I was immediately hooked, totally <laughs> transformed. So it's, um, yeah, it's been a crazy ride ever since. For myself, I never quite got e-bikes or scooters until I actually threw a leg over an e-bike and then I'm like, oh, got it. Like yeah. you just really just can't. And then when you experience it, it's just it's just one of those moments where you just go, yeah, that, that totally makes sense. I, I've yet to get on a one wheel. I'm curious when I do. I need to get on oh. a one wheel at some point and check that out. But No, I'm um, avoiding that completely. That is not <laughs> on my horizon at all. And the speed part of it isn't even what really hooked me. It's that little bit of amplification. So it's, it's you, you're able to pedal. And I, I really do like to pedal and use pedal assist more than throttle only. It's just this idea that you have more power than you ordinarily would have. It's, it's just that's an incredible feeling without having to push the boundaries on speed or kind of do the, the more daring feats. I think just the basics of e-bike riding are so compelling for someone like me who doesn't necessarily need things like a one wheel, which I'm terrified of, by the way. So what brought you into the cycling world of juice? Because it wasn't about performance cycling like some of the other brands that are 
coming from analog cycling and going into e-bikes. I mean, Juiced right. is a specific e-bike only company, but mm-hmm. also the vibe like on the front webpage, this doesn't look like your average bicycle plus motor. This looks like something totally different and cool. Yeah. It's funny when I started, I don't think I would have been described as the um, quintessential consumer for an e-bike. I think that's changed because I, I am the type of person who was not a cyclist. I mean, I've ridden bikes, of course, but I wouldn't call myself a cyclist or someone who was spending a lot of time on traditional bicycles. I'm also not interested in traveling at high speeds and you know going 30 plus miles on an e-bike on throttle only. What I found most powerful about the product and the platform is this idea of of empowering yourself, of kind of amplification of your own strength. It just gives you that little bit of a boost. For me, that was all it took. I know for others, they take full advantage of the power and the performance and our products at many different levels. But I, I would call myself someone that was not a cyclist. I love the different form factors of our bikes because I felt like I wasn't riding a typical bike. It was something so much different and so much more fun I'm um, so much more interesting. All of those things to me were really appealing. Yeah, it it gets a little bit challenging when you take the same model and and the big brands do this and they do this well. So you can get the the version of the mountain bike that's analog and then the version of that same mountain bike with the same name or, or a slightly modified name that's got an E in front of it or something of that nature. So having a different view, I think for other people, other stakeholders, residents that are around makes it a little more identifiable. And I think of it like, you know what a motorcycle looks like when a somebody riding one is, is approaching or coming up. You also can hear for at least a ice motorcycle, you can hear it like for e-motorcycles, it's again, kind of the same mm-hmm. challenge for any sort of electric vehicle, motorcycle or others. I, I really am optimistic that from a safety perspective, I just feel that when the driver sees a child on a bicycle, they behave a lot more safe than if maybe they see some Lycra toting hardcore cyclist and he or she's just crushing the, the local berms uh, of the of the shoulders of, of the, the roads. So I think there's definitely something there about what Juice is doing and kind of getting a different look and, and trying to create a bit of a movement there. Definitely. And, and our founders always thought of the e-bike as really not a bike. I mean, as an alternative to transportation, as an alternative to a car. And he spent a lot of time in Europe, a lot of time in Asia where that is already happening. You know, the bike, whether it's an e-bike or an analog bike is already a really reliable and well-established alternative. It's not so much here in America yet, although in certain communities that's changing really, really quickly. But I completely agree that car drivers Um, They do behave differently when they see different types of cyclists, of course. Important to point that out. Let's talk a little bit about some safety topics that are going on. So are you in California or just the companies in California? Companies in California. I live in Encinitas, California, which actually is a community that's been in the news quite a bit as it pertains to e-bike safety. And so what's going on in, in Cali about e-bike regulations? I mean, us, us in Detroit, we're, we're not all up to speed on what what's the latest. So please fill us in. Yeah, it's incredible to see how different the evolution of the e-bike market is by region. So I live in a community or I live in a city where e-bikes, I would guess, outnumber traditional bikes by maybe 10 to 1. Most days that I drive, 
I see 15 to 20 e-bikes. I maybe see two traditional bikes. The adoption rate of e-bikes here has got to be one of the highest in the country. Uh, as a result, we have more incidents that you know, we call safety issues. We have more kids riding e-bikes. My son is in junior high, and of 850 students, I think they're up to 350 of them riding e-bikes on a daily basis, just to wow. give you a sense of how much saturation there is here. So I know that the California state legislation that was recently introduced actually came from our district covering Encinitas and Carlsbad, California. And again, it is a completely different picture until you see it, until you see the number of e-bikes here, it's hard to even imagine how quickly this has transformed in one community. What in your mind, because we don't see that here in the Midwest and partially because we have this thing called winter that shows up once yes. a year, <laughs> but uh, uh, you guys probably haven't had a, a, a snowy Christmas in the history of California, no, at least here in Cali. What adopted to this rapid change and what are we looking at as far as the proposed legislation? What What's the problem and, and what's the proposed solution here? I think our communities and a lot in California and probably someone else would need to validate this, but my suspicion is it started early on, even pre-COVID with the surfing communities. E-bikes were a really easy way to get back and forth to the beach. You could have your surfboard. You know, you didn't have to worry about some of the traditional challenges of traveling on a traditional bike. And you didn't have to worry about things like parking and just the glut of people you find typically at beaches. So I think they were the early adopters in our community that quickly kind of this whole thing snowballed during COVID as people were looking for just ways to keep busy. They'd seen e-bikes in our communities. So it was, it happened fast. And then I think it entered suburbia. And then I think what we saw is a lot of I would say 12 to 16, maybe even 17-year-olds riding e-bikes very, very quickly. And their parents then discovered, wait, this is something that I want for myself. It's very active. They're very active communities. And I think it allowed a lot of demographics to enjoy being outside and cycling, people who never thought of themselves as cyclists. So in our communities, I, you know, when people ask, who is your target market? really think, well, it's anyone over the age of probably 12 up to any age, literally, because an e-bike can be enjoyed by so many types of people. It's not quite there in other communities and weather is a barrier, of course, but we are seeing other big urban areas begin this transition. New York City is obviously another big mecca for e-bike usage. A lot of that with delivery drivers, and then they've got city bikes, so they've got share programs that make e-bikes very common in those areas as well. So the legislation in California, I'll talk a little bit about that. Well, there are two pieces. One is prohibiting riders under the age of 12 from operating an e-bike, because there have been some accidents of involving riders who are younger than 12, but it also requires a certain amount of education. I know we're kind of using the word licensing. I'm not sure that that's exactly what was intended but some amount of, of education or training to happen prior to getting a permit to operate an e-bike. So just going to be open, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure, sure a lot of the other listeners are thinking the same thing is that, and I know the folks at the bike industry are probably might be hitting the stop button on this podcast if they hear this, but like, like that kind of sounds like mopeds, right? When I was a kid, like we're talking like late seventies, eighties, like, you know, you, you get your moped license at 13 or 14 or whatever. I grew up in Ohio, but couldn't get your driver's license till later. Like it, 
I want to back up a step about the problem. So Mm -hmm. like, this is great. People are on bikes. That's a good thing, right? It's good for so many different reasons. I think all of our listeners know why bikes are good. Now, what is the problem that we're trying to solve in California with now that everybody's on bikes? What, what tension are we running into? Is it a personal rider safety? Is it the tension between cyclists and pedestrians, cyclists and dog walkers, pedestrian cyclists right. and vehicles? What, what are we talking here? Yeah. What's, what, where's the tension? I think the tension has come from some very tragic accidents involving cyclists and automobiles and cars. I don't think there's as many incidents, at least in California, involving pedestrians, although that's not unheard of. I just think Mm. the primary driver behind this coal and the activism is that e-bike riders are getting injured and or killed. And I think the knee-jerk reaction is to scrutinize e-bikes. They mm. go too fast. They're dangerous. This is, they're too powerful. And I really think the true issue here is we have roads and we don't, you know, we don't like to share our roads. If mm. we're a car driver, the idea of having to share that space is, is a bit foreign. I mean, we are a nation that loves its cars. And we like to drive our cars. And even here, I think it is this this conflict between a car driver and an e-bike rider. And it's something that we're, as more and more e-bikers are on the road, I don't think car drivers are used to operating with e-bike riders. So I think that is really the cause. But again, the knee-jerk reaction is e-bikes aren't safe. And a lot of people who aren't familiar with kind of what e-bike riders are doing and how they're behaving on the road that is going to be their go-to position. And I think we have to really, really scrutinize that way of thinking. Yeah, it makes sense. There's a new version of the Federal Highway Guide for <laughs> how roads are designed. And I, I would expect, and don't quote me on this, that in the MUTC, it talks about prioritization for vulnerable road users. And we've mm-hmm. seen that in my local community where certain traffic lights now provide, before the light turns green for a driver, the walk goes from red to white, where you have the, the walking icon, the, the human walking icon to let the uh, people, pedestrians get into the crosswalk before any of the lights turn green. So mm-hmm. it clearly provides that priority and there's no confusion that they're supposed to be there where otherwise you can get attention, especially on where I live, you have these five lane roads with a center turn lane to each direction. Mm-hmm. And then the light turns green and the drivers sometimes are just thinking that they have a green turn arrow. That means they have the right of way and not thinking mm-hmm. that a pedestrian or, a, and then this is where it gets a little bit dicey is, as a cyclist on the sidewalk, does he or she have the right of way? So part of this, I, I we know is just learning curve is that as you bring more bicycles into a community, it, it ends up, everyone learns, okay, now they're expecting these things. And I, I haven't been yelled to get on the sidewalk in a while. That's a good thing. But we yeah. still have tension um, between the the drivers and cyclists, especially during rush hour and and in Michigan, we have two seasons, winter and construction. So everyone's <laughs> already using ways to blast through side streets yeah. and already not feeling great. They got to sit in traffic because their companies returned to the office. So there's a lot of these yeah. other external factors that kind of lead in. But from a regulatory standpoint, if it is tension between the driver and the e-bike rider, Certainly, there are some educational things to make sure that everybody's following the rules. And I'm going to say mm-hmm. rules intentionally. It's law, but also the rules, like the good etiquette. Rules of the road. Yep. Like when to overtake a cyclist. Or as a cyclist, 
I always tell, tell people that, yeah, even if you have the right of way, you're not going to be happy about that if you're under the front of a bumper. So you still need right. to be responsible for riding defensively and being smart. And I, I think some folks within the, the League of American Bicyclists would agree. So I'm curious from a legislative perspective, are you thinking of this as like a, a good step forward, which is like a uh, one step for California that can be deployed like nationwide or, or how do, how do you, how are you guys looking at this? And I know, I mean, again, not being from California, we see a lot of yeah. California led regs and um, some of them were like, okay, cool. This is very, there seemed all to be progressive, but some of them were like, okay, this could really make yes. a positive impact. Others were like, well, that sounds great, but how the heck are we going to enforce these things? Right. And it is sometimes a, a reach and over legislation. There's some things happening in New York City, too, that we are big proponents of, and that has to do with what is affecting them. And that largely is about the actual safety of an e-bike and the e-bike battery and charging those batteries. That's been in the news a lot. So New York City has, I think, been the first to enact um, basically legislation that prevents any e-bike from being sold that does not conform, does not adhere to UL certification requirements for battery right. safety. That we definitely think needs to be enacted in more communities. Um, we don't talk enough about the requirements and the responsibilities of manufacturers and retailers. At Juiced, in a week, we feel like we're ahead of that because we've always produced bikes that have things like hydraulic disc brakes. Mm -hmm. We've yeah. always had batteries that conform to safety certifications that UL has has published. So we feel like we've already been there. It's been so discouraging as a brand that's been around for almost 15 years to see so many other cheap e-bike brands enter the market with absolutely no oversight. And retailers that don't, you know, they're really not paying attention to basic safety requirements. So I think that is one piece of, of regulation that has to be introduced. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's one side of it. I think then there's two pieces that California is attempting to tackle. One is requiring the age, you know, different age requirements, which I don't think is a bad thing. I, I absolutely believe you need to be a certain age to operate an e-bike. What age that is, is probably open for debate. You want parents to make some of those judgments on their own, but I have seen firsthand a lot of kids who are not even just physically speaking, they're not tall enough to even put their feet down. They're not mature enough to operate an e-bike and understand how it works. They don't use great judgment. So I think that is an important piece of it. But the one piece that I think is missing from what California is introducing and I think is so critical is the changes to our infrastructure, having more protected and separated bike lanes. These are just basics. As more and more e-bikes are on the road, this has to be part of a discussion about e-bike safety. Mm -hmm. It's not just what the responsibility is of the e-bike rider, what the responsibility is of the car driver. At some point, there has to be an investment in infrastructure so that mm -hmm. you can accommodate different types of, you know, whether it's a, a car driver or a bike rider or an e-bike rider. And that has not caught up, at least in our communities, to reflect the number of people that are riding this way, that are transporting themselves this way. Makes sense. I'm curious about regulation from a bicycle world perspective. So being again, motor city guy, the, the auto industry 
has full teams uh, at OEMs. They have a government relations teams. They have uh, automotive safety office. They have various partnerships. Shout out to the Crash Avoidance Metrics Partnership, all our campers in Southfield uh, fighting the fight and keeping us all safer out there. You guys rock. Uh, I'm trying to ask about the process for the right balance because the bike industry is, uh, depending on where you look, 75 billion globally. It's, it's just hard to think about how that bike industry, I mean, most tier one suppliers have sales in that. The total size of the entire bike market globally is like one OEM, big OEM supplier. Automotive's two point five trillion, and how how do how do we balance this for regulations that bike industries work? And I, you've got a unique perspective because you're coming from a relatively small compared to the obviously the big bike brands. Like how how like you create these regulations, but then how's this going to work with compliance for small companies that may not have the the back house resources or other, like you said earlier, other bad actors that even if, even if juiced bikes is doing the right things, it wouldn't necessarily prevent somebody from firing up a factory in Asia and, and putting bikes through eBay and away we go. Right. Right. Well, I can speak to some of that. Do I think we have to have the same amount of regulations as the automobile industry? No, I, I think one of the beauties one of many of the beauties of, of an e-bike is its simplicity, is the fact that it should make traveling in some regards easier because you don't have to get insurance necessarily and you don't have to have a license and registration and you don't have to spend thousands and thousands of dollars. So I think that's an important part of what makes e-bikes special. And I don't think we want to take that away, but I do think, and I can speak from experience to say that you can make and sell an e-bike and do it responsibly with good components that don't put the lives of the rider at risk. And I think consumers have to understand there's a certain price for that. And it doesn't have to be $10,000, but it certainly isn't $300. And so I do think that if you're manufacturing your responsible brand, I know that that can be done and your company can still survive and make it and, and operate. I think because there's no regulation now and you have 350 plus e-bike brands on, on Amazon, for instance, I think it makes it really hard for the responsible good brands to even be able to promote themselves as such. It's mm -hmm. just complete chaos in the market because there is no regulation. I don't think adding some layers of regulation necessarily will hurt financially the companies that are, are acting responsibly now. Good point. Let's talk about equity inclusion for a little bit. At, at our company, Tome and now Valtech, we've prioritized equity inclusion because many folks riding bikes, that's the only way they have to get to work. And starting to add expensive, as one of our old friends called them, expensive widgets on the handlebars, which you have to pay a monthly subscription for, have a big battery that are hundreds of dollars, uh, that, that may be possible uh, for the cycling athletic community. And, and we have amazing products like the Garmin Radar Vari, called Varia. We've got, uh, I, I had a um, founder of a startup called Velo AI, Clark on the show uh, last, last month. So, I mean, there is opportunities there, but at the end of the day, if somebody's riding a bike or then can affordably get into a, a affordable and safe compliant e-bike, we obviously don't want to be putting any sort of additional barriers for that that rider to uh, to be able to access. So, 
as you're thinking of from the legislative standpoint, how equity inclusion play a role in in what makes sense for the, the industry? Yeah, I mean, I, we are big proponents of a national rebate and incentive program for e-bikes that's easier to understand and for consumers to access. I know that's been proposed um, at the federal level and it has not passed because mm-hmm. they've been there've been a lot of fights about kind of what are the income requirements to even qualify for those programs. Mm-hmm. We spend a lot of money, a lot of tax dollars on rebates and incentives for electric cars. Shocking to me that we don't allocate really on a federal level and mm-hmm. very minimally on the state level for e-bike credits and incentives for people who should get them and would benefit greatly from them. So we have been proponents um, working with people for bikes on getting some of those initiatives passed, um, but they need to be done in a way that's, again, much easier to understand and much easier to use. In California, we're getting ready to launch our rebate program, um, but the bureaucracy that still is kind of selling that program is difficult to it's difficult for anyone to understand. And I'm in the e-bike industry. I, I think for consumers, it's especially hard to understand. Um, in a lot of places, it's restricted to only at retail locations. So you can't take advantage from any online sources. Um, so I think that tax rebates and incentives have to be more accessible. I also agree that, you know, you don't want to over-legislate e-bikes so that they're not easy for some groups, people to utilize. And so we want to be really careful about which measures actually supportive of and ones that protect safety and and really we think are kind of the, the no-brainers and maybe instead of a cash for clunkers program we need an e-bikes for clunkers program <laughs> that's and, right uh, that, that would get it done i i just want to say amen to your point about uh electric vehicles that are, are getting these rebates and i mean at least with some of my folks i'm i work with and are friends with you know we're talking about getting that discount on that tesla that's a i don't know seventy thousand dollar car i'm thinking to myself like well okay, but like, shouldn't we be giving people better access? And I mean, our, our transit options here in Metro Detroit are not good. So I mean, we mm-hmm. don't have trains, our buses are, are getting better, but they're not good. And it like for folks to be able to get, uh, even just the workforce to be able to get around. So folks that are coming from Detroit to Troy and, and the suburbs and, mm-hmm. and having options uh, to get there mm-hmm. and, and they're not showing up sweaty or feeling like, and, and we live in a flat area too. So it just, it makes sense on so many different levels to mm-hmm. be, supporting transportation. So I, I, I always feel like this is a transportation issue, not an e-bike yep. issue. And I, I think if it was framed more as getting workforce from home to the job site, uh, I, mm-hmm. I think, that, I think you probably get a little more legs out of it. And it's just sometimes hard to get out of the way. Cause a lot of this is, comes back to, from a transportation standpoint, is it a bicycle, scooter, walk, bus, car, autonomous vehicle, which seems to get a lot mm-hmm. of, uh, still a lot of, a lot of cycles. And in DC as well as in the news uh, nationally, but it, I feel like there's e-bikes is just a bigger opportunity to help people get around. So hopefully this will make sure that everybody's leveled up and it's not just for folks that are um, uh, affluent. We're, we're, we're working to make sure we got good equity inclusion there for for what's going to be coming. That's a great point. And when we talk about tax incentives or rebates for EVs and mostly cars, they're, they're typically, if you're buying a Tesla, I'm not sure that you're at the, you know, kind of the top of the priority list for needing a tax break. Yet someone who is interested in buying an e-bike for twelve or thirteen hundred dollars, um, but gets a five hundred dollar or even a three or four hundred dollar incentive on that, that's a big deal. That mm-hmm. makes that transportation alternative. It puts it potentially in reach 
And the other benefits of, of using an e-bike are, are so enormous. Everything from physical activity, even if you are not pedaling with as much power as an analog bike, obviously benefits for the environment. You know, we detail that constantly all of the benefits of using an e-bike and it's you know we hope we get to a point where we can make e-bikes more accessible to larger numbers of people who really would benefit from that alternative excellent so if there is regulation coming down and and we're successful let's just pretend like we can fast forward get a time machine here <laughs> pop in that delorean and take it to 88 and and zap forward uh, let's talk about enforcement. So you got, it got me thinking about this as I was doing prep for the show that I've never asked law enforcement how they, even if they would need to, if it's a problem with people that don't have a driver's license because they're too young driving vehicles. Mm. I, I would just guess that that's not a significant issue maybe. And, and then only because if the people were doing it, maybe they're in extremely rural areas. And yeah. so I'm curious about the stakeholder for enforcement. So obviously we got real retailers, consumer retailers like Amazon, mm -hmm. eBay, and others, as well as the independent bicycle dealers, those IBDs. We got government folks. We got the trade associations like People for Bikes. Uh, then we also have the like industry standard groups like SAE, Consumer Technology Association. I mean, there's a lot here. So for mm -hmm. enforcement of these types of regulations. I mean, we, we can get a win and say, all right, we're going to make the world a safer place. And now it's, it's law. But at the end of the day, we still have to find out who's, who's going to be enforcing. And the almost, I call it the, so what factor uh, within my company, I always say play a so what game until you get to the, the end. So I'm, I'm curious what, what happens, you know, so what, like what, what's the enforcement going to look like to make sure that we're that the goal is to increase safety, that these regulations will actually lead to safer roads. And there's many levels. So yes to most of that. I mean, does it require retailers like an Amazon? Is there some responsibility for them to not sell e-bikes that they know to be unsafe and start fires and they don't have the right kind of brakes and they're going to be recalled? Absolutely. Like that has to be part of this equation. It can't be 350 e-bike brands on on Amazon. I get the appeal to Amazon, but it really does uh, the riders a huge disservice. So I think there is a responsibility from the retailers, from the manufacturers, obviously, and only kind of producing bikes that are safe. And there are some very basics that need to be met to do that. I think enforcement at the local, the state and the federal level, probably less so on the federal level, but really local communities. It's amazing. Every state has some e-bike law on the book. I think almost all of them do now. But we've done we've seen some funny, funny social media memes of cops being asked or policemen being asked, law enforcement being asked, is this bike street legal? And they typically have no idea. Yeah. And it's it's funny in a way, but it's also not. So I think there needs to be more training on that level. Communities have to do more. I can tell you from my own perspective. My son's school, again, he's in junior high, they've taken a huge leap and been very proactive about safety and enforcement. And basically, a student has to complete established education courses, which are offered in our communities to get, and they have to complete online training to get a parking permit. Without that mm -hmm. parking permit, that bike is not allowed on school properties. So there are really clever ways Brilliant. that communities, schools, they can take a more proactive approach. And I think they are because there's a lack of this happening at the state or city levels and definitely at the federal level. So I think people will get very creative 
when it comes to protecting our safety and dealing with the fact that, yes, there are people choosing to ride e-bikes and that's not changing. It's only becoming kind of a bigger and bigger phenomenon, especially in, in many California cities and many urban cities. That's brilliant. And I, I think this could easily go into the charging for e-bikes as well. Uh -huh. So if e-bikes aren't being brought into the home to charge or they're being charged in other areas, the parking comment could easily be associated with when it's being used to charge. Right. And I mean, that's one thing everyone's got. Everyone's got a smartphone. So like that, I mean, there mm -hmm. are ways I, I love that incentive to, to go that route. I also think that from a licensing perspective, by the time law enforcement shows up, it's probably too late. That means there's yeah. already been a problem. So I think that, that um, I mean, we're, we're not trying to create like a national registry of e-bikes. I think that, that at a local community level, I think communities can kind of determine what makes sense. And mm -hmm. uh, you talked about the real, like like actual hard infrastructure, concrete asphalt. And the, there's a challenge that I see coming that a analog bicycle is okay to be in almost all situations if the rider is acting appropriately and for other people around the cyclist pedestrians drivers you can kind of get a cue when you start having a throttle on any product a motorized product with a throttle you don't get a visual cue there's no movement of the legs or some other like stand up in a and a push something else that most people don't even realize but it's subliminal but you realize okay this person's about to start going fast and right. with a throttle, you have no idea, which is why motorcycles really should never, ever be on a sidewalk or a, a rail trail path or things of that nature. Cause you just don't, you don't have mm -hmm. any sort of a visual cue of what the intent is of the rider. So mm -hmm. uh, with, with e-bikes, it, it's a, in my opinion, it, it becomes kind of a challenge because it's hard to gauge speed. And when you mentioned mm -hmm. about the, it's new to the area, people are becoming familiar is I mean, this is something that us in the in the like uh, the beer league uh, racing community knows is that when we're going down a side street, we might be going twenty five or thirty on a flat road. Uh, a lot of drivers just don't just misjudge the speed because they're assuming we're going twelve. Where right. an e bike now you now, but at least as they know that oh that guy's wearing lycra, he probably may be going fast or she might be crushing it doing some intervals on a berm, whereas. If you see a child on a bike, I, I would imagine most people would assume that the, the, the child's probably moving 12 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have a child on an e-bike, now you got a 12-year-old going 23 miles an hour ripping. And it's yeah. uh, judging, is it okay to turn left in front of this this vulnerable road user? That That's a wholly new ballgame now. It's totally a new ballgame. And it's so many of the accidents are the car driver turning right. And probably being aware that there's a cyclist behind them, but misjudging by mm. a huge margin how fast they're coming. The right hook. So they're yeah. thinking, yeah, I'm going to turn right and I've got plenty of time because they're so far behind and suddenly there's a collision. So I think that's an important point is just uh, car drivers aren't really accustomed to the speeds yeah. at which e-bikes travel and mm -hmm. how quickly they can accelerate. There's a part of being, I said earlier about being a defensive rider, and I feel that's it's part of the part of the plan. You can't just say I'm right. And I got ran over, you know, like, but That's I was still right. right. You know, the, the goal here yeah. is to keep it safe. And right hooks is a challenging one because typically there's no intent. Nobody made a massive mistake on right hooks. No. And, and you're not checking, you're, you're usually looking left. It's just, again, it goes back to that prioritization and, and there's been things that have been tried. Like there are in many communities, we have the green paint in front of the stop bar, but that's mm -hmm. assuming that the vehicle stopped and you're not approaching a vehicle that's already moving 
and making the turn. So there, there are these instances and in intersection collisions that, and that certainly counts as a, as an intersection uh, issue around safety. Those are areas that I think education absolutely can level it up, but also making sure that the, the people are where they're supposed to be. So mm-hmm. uh, you don't, uh, uh, I always say a pedestrian is never going to be standing in the left-hand turn lane in the middle of the intersection with their <laughs> arm out saying, I'm turning left, yeah. waiting for the light to change and going. But as a cyclist, you're out there. So like giving mm-hmm. that cyclist a little extra time to clear can be helpful. So like those, those are definitely areas where I absolutely education is going to be helpful but uh, technology should be able to help a little bit as well too. So I'm, I'm optimistic because at, at tricky intersections, that's, that's big. I couldn't even imagine trying to think of a, like a minor in that situation and expecting a 15 year old even to know, right. like, yeah. like even a driver, a 15 year old driver, it's not mm-hmm. just age, it's age too, but like, it's also the experience set. Experience. I'm just mm-hmm. going like, yeah, that's, that's a situation where this might happen. And not thinking that that could be a, a catastrophic situation you're about to Absolutely. ride into. Yeah. So there, there are many new challenges and many opportunities to address those and ensure that we're all moving more safely. We're sharing our road space. And I think some of that will have to include more regulation and more infrastructure support for cyclists or e-bike riders, however we want to define them. But, you know, transportation or vehicles that aren't cars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just sort of a random one for listeners, man, I know there's something called the Idaho stop laws. I'm assuming it was because it was started in Idaho where basically treats stop sign as yield and a red light as a stop sign for a cyclist. Super helpful for any of our listeners that aren't a cyclist because you, it takes a lot of energy to get started out of a stop. And if you have good clearance, you know, rolling a stop sign at five miles an hour is very safe in my experience and most people's. The laws are are pretty much practiced everywhere, legal in mm-hmm. some places, but but pretty much general. So, I mean, as we get into e-bikes versus analog cyclists, this could be really interesting, especially if you have a mixed group ride. And obviously this wouldn't be the one person commuting, but in group rides where you have some people on with one set of rules and some people with other set of rules based on their bike, the general rule is follow the rules of the road. But in practice, you have to do things that are safer and you have to like, sometimes it's like, you really do not want to be in that left-hand turn lane in that intersection because it is not safe. In other cases, you're like, I'm rolling through a a, a neighborhood. I don't need to stop and put a foot down at every four-way intersection. It's just not practical and doesn't increase any safety. I have plenty of visibility. I'm fine. So I'm kind of curious if you think that, not that Idaho stop in particular, but that having the differences between e-bike versus analog cyclists are going to force us to get to a mode where it's like you're either are following rules of road if you're in the road or you're on sidewalk and if you're on sidewalk you can't have a motor on your bike i'm kind of curious how that's yeah i think we're headed in that direction if you've got a motor on your bike you shouldn't be on the sidewalk and if you're you know you're you're on the road you need to be following the rules of the road and i think i think we'll probably get to a point where so many analog bikes will be replaced by e-bikes and so many new e-bikes will be replacing automobiles that the discussion and the, this whole paradigm will shift to, okay, it's an e-bike. What, what is the right way to ride and to move on the road, knowing that you're sharing it with, with cars and other forms of transportation? But I think for now, I think that's probably the safest way to view it. If it's got a motor, if it's got a throttle, you should be riding on the road. You shouldn't be riding on sidewalks for the most part. And if you're riding on the road, you should follow the rules of the road. I think that's the safest approach. 
So last question before I have our, our usual uh, sure. fan favorite wrap up. Our listeners across the bike industry, policymakers, automobile manufacturers, multimodal transit people at, at cities, do you have a message for them from, from Juice Bikes? Uh, what would you ask our listeners to think about or do or get engaged in the conversation? Yeah, I mean, I think for the most part, we are way, way far behind where this market is already headed. And and I mean that in a number of ways, whether it's product safety, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's legislation, I think those are the three most important topics. And what's happening is consumers are deciding and they're using, at least in many communities, they've decided that an e-bike is a better way to ride, especially short distances. That's not changing. It's continuing to gain momentum. I think if we continue to just blame e-bikes and e-bike riders, we will be failing our communities and we will be failing these citizens who are trying to operate in a more kind of efficient and effective manner for themselves. So I encourage kind of everyone to see what's happening in some communities like New York City, like what's happening in California, because that will eventually be coming to other cities and other communities. So these are these are topics that we're way behind on. And I hope that we can, you know, focus a bit more of our attention collectively so that we can prevent other deaths and other tragedies from occurring and again support our own citizens and populations that that want to ride this way because it really is for many many reasons a great alternative to to car riding thank you so carrie i always ask our guests what kind of podcast shows newsletters trade shows not just professionally but also personally what <laughs> what, are, what are you listening to what are you reading what are you going through these days and we'll put these in the show notes for the for those of you listening to click and check out. Well, we've been working with Electrify Expo. They do some great events and have a lot of EVs and done a lot to expose consumers to e-bikes and other ways of of kind of transportating or transportation. Um, Micro mobility industries. They've done a lot on behalf of the micro mobility movement, and that includes e-bikes, of course. So we're always kind of aligned with what they're doing. People for Bikes, of course, they have done more and more with e-bikes lately. So staying aligned with what they're working on. They do a lot of work on the legislative front, which of course we're really supportive of. And then Electric is, they've just become a great resource in e-bikes, but EVs in general. And they have a really great take typically on what's happening with the e-bike movement. And they've been pretty opinionated and outspoken about the idea of blaming e-bike riders and uh, comparing that to victim shaming and blaming. So we always kind of check in with them to see their take on, on many different topics. They've got a lot of education and information available to people who are novices to the e-bike market. So those are the ones that we're staying in touch with pretty much on a daily or weekly basis. For me personally, I'm... <laughs> I'm a little bit of a true crime junkie, so those are typically the podcasts that I'm tuning into, but I also um, sometimes just Hollywood and celebrity gossip is fun. Yeah, but I would say that takes up the majority of, of my free time because I don't have a ton of it. Awesome. The, the true crime meets the bicycle safety evangelist. Well, yes. Uh, last, last question. <laughs> That's awesome. Last question. How can our listeners get in touch with you or, or Juice Bikes? Well, definitely. We encourage if you have any questions about e-bikes and want to get in touch with Juice, it's support at juicebikes.com. They can send us an email there directly. They can call us. We have a, a toll-free line 
If they want to get in touch with me specifically, I would encourage them to use our marketing at Juice Bikes email and they can connect with me there. Of course, all of our socials. Um, so TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, it's at Juice Bikes. So happy to engage with you there as well. Excellent. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for, for being on the show and Thank you for having me. Different perspective. And, and I, I love the conversation. I'm sure our listeners are going to be thinking a little bit different now as we go forward. So I hope so. And that was Carrie Kaufman, Chief Revenue Officer at Juiced Bikes. I'm your host, Jake Siegel. Thanks again for listening and see you next time in the bike lane.